And so I think what I'm working on now where we actually stop emissions, to me, that's totally exciting. And, and what I think I'm really lucky to do is, is that the tools it takes me to stop those emissions kind of draw on everything I've ever learned. It draws on my, my math background. It draws on my applied math background. Um, it draws on the sort of what, what I would now call operations, but at the time was like learning how to deploy sensor networks um, for my PhD. Like I, I, I think I'm very lucky in that I do what I did for my PhD. I kind of do that for a living. And I do so in a way that has gotten like more technical and more sort of demanding. Hello, welcome to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. This is an eight-part series where you hear from scientists who are doing impactful work in spaces beyond academia. I'm your host, Chris DeHazencope. For the first two episodes, I'm going to give you some background on the podcast and why I'm making it. I'm a former academic. I got my PhD in atmospheric science, and I worked in a few different sectors over the course of my career. I've been a high school geometry teacher in a public school, I've acted as an advisor to U.S. federal agencies. Um, I've started up a nonprofit, and I consider myself a social entrepreneur of sorts. Um, and at various points, I've been asked to talk to groups of early career scientists about my alternative career post-PhD. Uh, and you know, I have to say, I, I find that phrase super problematic. Uh, really, the whole concept of that phrase alternative career. I think it I think it has tunnel vision baked right into it. I mean, I don't know if if I ate an apple for breakfast and insisted on going around calling everything else I ate all day alternative food, my guess is you might think I was a little close-minded to other foods besides apples. Uh, instead, I've, I've thought of my science degree as enabling this giant map of career possibilities uh, rather than than this tunnel view. Uh, and, and science academic jobs are a specific place on that map, but, but there's been many other places that I've been grateful uh, to, to have experienced. So the point of this podcast is twofold. One, to offer some perspective, uh, to just illustrate how very large the map of possibilities is for someone with a science degree seeking impactful and meaningful to them work. Two, uh, to elevate the idea of careers beyond science academia and motivate you to explore them if you're inclined. Genuinely, academia is competing for you and your science degree with a lot of other sectors where you could do meaningful work. Again, that map of possibilities is, is big. And a word on what this podcast isn't. This podcast isn't meant to give step-by-step -step resources on how to break into other fields. You will hear resources and programs mentioned by guests that they went through, uh, which are recorded in the program notes and are also on exploredof.com. Uh, folks give advice or share what they wish they'd known themselves earlier in their career. But this is mainly a podcast about people's stories, their backgrounds, their science degrees, the jobs they've had, and how they've wound these three things together to build careers that ultimately they find satisfying. I hope you enjoy. In this second episode, I talked to Anna Scott. Anna got her PhD in atmospheric sciences and meteorology from Johns Hopkins in 2018, the same year she founded and launched her sensor company, Troposphere Monitoring. Late last year in 2020, Troposphere was acquired by the B Corps Project Canary, and that's where Anna is now as the president. I met Anna in 2017, about a year or so before she started her company. 
At the time, she was making national headlines as a graduate student who was reducing her carbon footprint by taking trains instead of planes across the country to attend conferences. And she was vocally encouraging the rest of academia to follow suit. So Anna's not the kind of person who just goes with the flow, especially if the flow doesn't make sense to her. She's always struck me as someone who determines her course based on her own deductions from first principles, and that's before I realized she was a math whiz. So I wasn't at all surprised to hear she decided to launch her own company, that it focused on targeting greenhouse gas emissions, or that she's been successful at it. I think one of the other things that comes through about Anna in the interview is that she's a risk taker. You have to be one to start an organization, but she frames it both for her business and in other parts of life as this default attitude of why not? Why not give something a new try if it seems of interest as long as you go in with your eyes wide open? So if you're interested in starting a business, Anna offers some great and reality checking advice in the interview. And a logistical note, Anna mentioned several books, business accelerator programs, and more in the interview, which I've thrown links to in the episode notes. Hi, Anna. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Dr. Hazenkopf. How are you? <laughs> very good, very good. And you're talking to us from Austin, Texas, is that right? Yep, that's correct. Awesome. Everything's awesome. bigger in Texas, y'all. <laughs> so before we dive into your career story, I want to hear a little bit about how things are going now at Project Canary. Uh, I believe the company you originally founded, Troposphere Monitoring, was acquired just this past December. So it's pretty recent. So how's it going and how's the transition been? Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, so for those that don't know, I, I founded a company when I was in graduate school that just got acquired by a, a company called Project Canary, um, where I'm now the president. And what we do at Project Canary is we help uh, companies reduce their industrial emissions, particularly in sectors like the natural gas industry. Um, and we do this by making sensors that measure for methane. And, and we, we have like analytics and a dashboard that notifies customers when, when they have big emission events, in short. And so I followed a little bit uh, uh, the environmental reporting for oil and gas industry, but not a ton. So something I've noticed, I think I, I've seen as a trend uh, in the last few years is a move towards um, more concrete actual data as opposed to estimates and hand-waving calculations. Um, I guess I'd be curious, do you agree with that that assessment? And also, what do you think is the push behind that movement towards more concrete data and closer to real-time data? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head. I think not just the, you know, the oil and gas industry, but I think many industries are moving towards more concrete environmental sustainability and, and governance or like ESGs, the parlances, um, to, to like actually measuring their ESG performance. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have penned a lot of words guessing as, as to why, but I, I think it's driven fundamentally by changes in consumer behavior. And, you know, the, uh, I think that millennials in particular believe in climate change even more so for Gen Z, um, we're looking for cleaner products. That includes cleaner energy sources. It includes, you know, I, I think it includes everything that, that people are buying. And fundamentally, um, you know, some of these companies are very, very big, powerful. They've had storied legacies, but ultimately you look at who they sell their products to. I mean, ultimately they're going to an end consumer. So as consumers change their behavior and, and demand more, um, I think these companies are, are going to they're responding, not fast, but they are, you know, things are changing. Got it. Um, so actually back to your day-to-day -day and your job now, I think one of the things that a lot of folks in academia who haven't worked outside of academia um, 
wonder about is what what does the day-to-day -day look like um, in a non-academic job? So what's your day-to-day -day job like? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I would maybe even clarify a little bit. I think it depends what like career tier you've gotten to in, in academia. Um, you know, I, I think definitely as you get, as, as, as you know, your career goes on, you become more successful. I think in, in many paths, you're pushed into more managerial positions. I think that that's definitely true in, in academia as well. But I, I left after I was a graduate student. Um, so, and I, you know, I think you were in a similar position. No, you, you did a postdoc, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think what the, the difference is, is that the amount of time conducted, spent conducting sort of like developing science or like a scientific product um, goes down a little bit and might be replaced by more sort of managerial functions or like organizational functions. Um, but I think that that's kind of analogous to, you know, my, my friends who are in postdocs who are starting to write their first grants, right? Like when I started my company, like, yeah, I was helping develop sensors and testing them and, and designing things and, and like doing writing code, but um, I started to work on fundraising, right? And so that probably replaced time that I would have been spending writing grants. And in some cases actually was writing grants um, funded in part by the National Science Foundation. Uh, so I think that's definitely one change that like, I would say for somebody who's a, at a graduate student level to, to expect, I think for people who are already like mid-career faculty, I think there's probably less changes and, and it's more like you swap out teaching for something else. So I'm, I'm really speaking to people who are interested in being basic researchers. I, I know that's not everybody's ideal, but I, I meet a lot of people at like academic society events where they're really interested in being a career researcher. Um, for those who do that by working at a, a teaching institution, um, I would say that it's, it's similar in that you swap out the teaching function for um, other job responsibilities. But to actually answer your question, like, what do I do all day? <laughs> I think I wake up, I check my email, I check Slack. Uh, I currently work um, remotely uh, with a team that's based in Colorado. Um, There's some early risers on the team, I'll just say that. So I typically make myself a latte. Uh, that was one of my COVID cooking skills I learned. Um, I do like an email sprint. And then I probably start the day with meetings either with my team or um, externally facing meetings. Um, I think one difference between being in a small company and being academia is like the time devoted to things like sales. So rather than say, you know, when I did community engaged work uh, as a graduate student, that probably got, you know, the, the stakeholder group changed to being customers. So instead of talking to folks in communities, I was talking about, well, I was still talking to folks in a different community. Um, and so that's certainly something, that, a function that I think doesn't really exist as much in um, the academic centers. That's a little bit of a change, but I think there's really a lot, a lot of an analogs in the actual day-to-day. That's super interesting. And do you feel in transitioning from graduate school to your company uh, full time, was there a transition in skill sets or really sort of just a transition in the way in which you applied your skill sets? Did you gain any skill sets when you when you started a company or needed did you need to gain new skill sets or how would you how would you characterize that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's so hard to look back and be like, you know, I feel the same, but uh, I don't know if those skill sets i'm sure that there i hope there's been some growth i think in particular i went from so i started i defended my phd on like a 
Thursday and I had gotten accepted into an accelerator program here in Austin. Um, for those that don't know, it's kind of like a business incubator program that like lasted for a couple months. For us, it came with some investment. So that meant that we got money in exchange for partial ownership of our company. And that program started like the Monday after my PhD wow. thesis defense. So I defended my thesis. I went home. I wrote it up, sent it to the library, packed everything up and moved to Texas. And it was like that first couple of weeks, I think was a little bit of a rough transition. I don't want to say rough, but it was, um, it was definitely like, you know, you come off of a high and I think I went from having a lot of, I don't want to say demand, but you know, I had a lot of work that was going on, like in my community with regards to like my thesis research. Um, I was getting a lot of requests to speak. And then all of a sudden I was moving to a new city where people were like, what are you doing? Like, why, why should this be a business? Like, we don't get it. Um, and so that was an, certainly an emotional trend. I don't want to say emotional, but that was different. <laughs> um, I think then the other skill set that I, I needed to learn, I think there's a lot of skill sets you need to learn to run like a small business or a startup. I think a lot of those you can learn. Um, I would say certainly like the sales function was new to me, but I think I've come around to realize that all of life is really just sales. You're either selling your research, you're selling your candidacy. And so seeing the world through that lens, I think like now I understand how you get a job, which like I didn't before, like you're just, you're selling yourself. And so that's been a new skill set to learn where, you know, I've been lucky to have people who've you know, said some helpful things, but some of it you can just like have learned on the job. That's, that's really, I like that uh, phrasing of, of you're always selling something. It's just a matter, matter of what and how, and how you package it. Uh, and I hope really it doesn't true. sound too cynical to people. Um, but what I would say is maybe if you, you know, take a step back, replace the word sell with like share or encourage I think my product is highly technical. And so the, the quote unquote selling that I do, a lot of it is really presenting, um, presenting a sensor, presenting like validation work we've done, answering questions like, you know, hey, how does turbulence affect this? Or, you know, what are confounding sources uh, that could confuse or in our case, not confuse our sensor? Um, and so the, that type of technical discussion is really about communication and so I think a lot of times, um, maybe if, if sales is a scary word, uh, I would just say communication and share information is in a convincing way is, is really what I mean by that in a more abstract way. Yeah, that makes sense. You're persuading people towards a vision. Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. So I would characterize your work now as a combination of science, entrepreneurship, and socially motivated and climate oriented work. But backing up before all of that, how did you grow up? Are you originally from Chicago? Yeah, so I, I moved around a fair bit, actually. So I, I was born here in Texas, in Houston. Um, and then I moved to Chicago um, when I was nine, went to high school in Seattle, and then moved back to Chicago for college. So I, I say I grew up in Chicago because I spent really a lot of my, my formative years there. Um, but I kind of had some experience of, of seeing different different places in the country and different style, like different neighborhoods. You know, I lived in Chicago. I lived on the South side. I lived, you know, within 10 or 12 blocks from Obama. Um, in Seattle, I lived in the suburbs and, and Houston's a very different city, I guess, altogether than, than either of those cities. 
and you eventually got your bachelor's in mathematics from the University of Chicago. What motivated, how, how did you growing up, uh, did, how, what made you decide to pick math uh, for, your, for your bachelor's? Yeah, so I, I should offer the like the clarification here that I, I probably had some some insider help. My my parents are, are professors. My dad is a professor of applied math, um, and so I think growing up certainly as the oldest and probably least need, needing of babysitting, I think my dad would like chuck me in his office uh, on those like parent teacher conference days and be like, "Here's a blackboard and some chalk, kid. Like, you know, entertain yourself while I'm off actually working." Um, so I think I always had this like early interest in, in math and I had some early aptitude in math and because in part I like moved between all these school districts, I ended up by the time I got to high school or by the, by the time I moved to Seattle, I was a year ahead of math at the end of middle school. And so they like physically had to like ship me off to the high school, um, to take math classes, which was like mortifying, horrifying, like, um, okay. <laughs> Put yourself, like, if you were in high school, like, you do not want to be sitting next to a middle schooler, right? Like, it's definitely, like, the least cool thing ever. Um, so I think for a while, that was a big part of my identity, even, um, that, like, I was somebody who was good at math. And I'm putting quotes here because this was not, like, a, oh, I thought I was really good at it. This was, like, everybody else was, like, this is the weird girl who, like, you know, is like clearly super nerdy because like how else could you possibly be any good at math? Um, so, uh, you know, I think I probably didn't love that or appreciate that because again, like wasn't very cool. Like in my math classes, like nobody would, nobody would talk to me. They'd be like, oh, that's Anna. She's younger. You know, I could be two or three years younger even. And like at that age, like super not cool. Um, but I eventually, um, you know, studied abroad actually at the end of high school. So I, I moved to France for my senior year of high school. So depending on how you look at it, I either repeated the 11th grade twice or graduated in high school, graduated high school in three years. You can pick how you want to view it. Um, and I think during that time, I obviously didn't like, I studied French in high school in America and um, didn't, wasn't super fluent. Uh, I moved to France for this year you know, study abroad program, lived with French families and went to French high school. And um, basically like math was the only thing I was like competent at. <laughs> and so I think that was kind of what took me into, um, you know, when I went to college and I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. My parents really encouraged me to think about like what I could offer the world and what I could do to, to make the world a better place, I think. And um I think when I was thinking about that, I was like, well, I think science is like helpful for the world. The world probably needs more scientists. God knows the US needs more scientists. Obama was not president yet at that point, but I mean, he was talking about how we need more STEM professionals. Um, so I ended up picking math, I think, out of a default choice because I thought, oh, like, uh, you know, this is something I could do where I, I clearly have some skill sets that might be above average and I could maybe apply those and, and be useful. Um, I think I also joked to you that I, I saw the, the play Proof at like a really early age. Proof is about, <laughs> it's one of these like works of, works of fiction that really glamorizes mental illness alongside mathematical genius. 
there's there's no shortage of this this narrative. So I I thought like like clearly this was my path in life that I was going to be some like glamorous but like very dysfunctional like mathematician. Um, it turned out that I in fact did have life skills. I thank God didn't have serious mental illness, um, but I also was not a mathematical genius when I got to college. So that's kind of how it turned out. And then when you got your master's, you you went for a master's in applied math. Um, was that a switch to you or was that like a natural progression um, from the outside, not being uh, a math major or um, math graduate student? I'm like, oh, it's another another uh, math. <laughs> uh, did, but in your mind, was it a, a, a change? Yeah, I, I think it was. I mean, I think it was a continuation of this path of, oh, I'm not really sure what I want to do with my life. Um, you know, I think I might like to be a scientist. In college, I had really studied like pure math. I'd certainly taken some some science classes, like in the earth or geophysical sciences um, part of my college. And so I knew I was kind of interested in being a scientist. Um, my undergraduate curriculum kind of, I don't want to say didn't prepare, but left some holes that I knew I'd need to fill. And so um, the idea of doing like a master's program to sort of try that out um, was was really appealing for me. And you did your master's in Saudi Arabia. Is that correct? Yes, that, that is correct. Um, I know my, my mom always jokes, like, don't tell people, they'll think you're weird. <laughs> um, I was at the end of my college career and, um, you know, I had definitely gotten some support, like a lot of support from my family for college, um, but was dead broke, like at the end of it. And so I was like looking at like dwindling money and I was like, okay, God, like I'm going to have to get a job, like ASAP, right? So was applying for jobs, was applying for graduate school. They were starting this new university in Saudi Arabia that um, was totally funded um, and would actually pay you to, to get your master's, provide like a living stipend. Um, I had uh, been studying Arabic in college and I spent the summer of before my junior year, um, uh, a lot of it in Cairo actually. And I had like really loved that experience. I, 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 I recognize that traveling is not actually an interest. Like this is like the most basic, like white girl, like, oh, I love to travel. Um, but I really enjoyed the experience. I felt like I learned a lot. Um, and I felt like there was like some personal growth uh, and it was just really cool. I mean, like the pyramids are awesome. And so I thought I was interested in doing more traveling, like more living abroad. Um, I remember I had some friends who like after they graduated college, they're parents like paid for them to like spend some time like traveling through like Europe or like go to Mexico or something. And I remember asking my parents for that. And they were like, oh, you bless your heart. You sweet, sweet girl. <laughs> you are so talented and so, so smart. And with all of those talented and smarts, we're sure you can find a job that will pay you <laughs> to do something like this. Um, this is, this then backfired for my mother when I was like, great, found it, Saudi Arabia. And she was like, oh, I didn't crap. <laughs> This wasn't, that was not what I meant. <laughs> not what I meant at all. Um, but yeah, so I, I found that there was this program. I talked to people who had visited the campus. I was really interested in it. I was interested in the idea that it was going to be super international, even though it was, was in Saudi Arabia. It was like had a really international um, sort of recruit, recruiting footprint. Um, and uh, they had some applied math people that were, were really good that they had poached. Uh, and I, I also liked that a lot of the like comparable sort of things I could do um, were really American universities that were like franchising. 
in other countries. Um, like uh, there's a lot of institutions that have opened up campuses in the Middle East, but it's really like an American institution in some other foreign country. And I kind of liked that this was like a, a you know, a, a Saudi institution that was opening up in Saudi Arabia. And I thought that was really cool. Um, this, the university is called Kaust, by the way, King Abdullah University of, of Science and Technology. Um, and so I went for, for two years. I, I talked to, before I made the decision, I talked to everyone I could find at my college who had actually physically visited. Um, and I think the bottom line was like, why not? You know, a lot of people were like, sure, like, could it be weird? Yeah. Like, did all my Arabic professors, like, you know, liberal Egyptians, like, were they a little horrified? Yes. <laughs> but um, I think bottom line, everybody was like, well, if it's so bad, you can just leave. Right. And I think that was really the attitude I, I took with me there. And I, I, I definitely met a number of other people there who like had this idea as well. Like when people would ask us, like, why are you there? Like, what are you doing? And we'd always say, why not? You know, <laughs> I like that. I think it's a, a good attitude for any decision that's actually quite reversible. Right. Like, <laughs> kind of why not? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> and then after your master's, you went for a PhD in atmospheric science. I'm, I'm super curious, the transition there and what was the thought process? And was it, was it from experiences during your master's or completely, completely different? Yeah, so I've always been taking courses kind of like in the earth science department. And I think not everybody knows this, but like atmospheric sciences is, is very mathy. And um, I think the earth science as a science, it's a newer science, right? Like historically it's, well, way back in the day it was all alchemy, right? In, in the Western tradition, obviously. Um, and then, you know, there's like chemistry and physics and math. Um, and earth science brings together techniques, <clears throat> brings together techniques from like all of those fields. Um, and so I had come at it from sort of the math side. I think I had this idea, but I was interested in it. You know, I'd taken a, a course on like climate change pr pretty early on um, from David Archer at University of Chicago, who has this really great um, book for undergrads. If you're teaching a course for like non-scientists on climate change, totally recommend it. Uh, so I'd always been sort of dabbling in this. I thought I was going to come at it from maybe more of like a math angle, like do some of the, the mathematical modeling and, and some of the um, some of the climate models. Uh, which, uh, you know, I did actually was exploring some some PhD positions in, um, but I ended up picking Johns Hopkins because they had this interdisciplinary program funded in part um, by the National Science Foundation to bring together um, students from different disciplines that I just, I thought was really interesting. So it was um, for, for folks who are familiar, it was the NSF IGERT program, which I think doesn't exist anymore and now it has a different name but the basic idea was there would be a you know two-year fellowship and a cohort of engineers and public health students and climate scientists who would come together study some of these issues um and i think that was actually a really looking back that was a really good choice not only because like a i found the topic matter exciting but b one of the students in that cohort i went on to co-found my company with him and actually related to that i'm curious what at what point during, because you started your company during graduate school, at what point during graduate school did you make make that decision? And was that was that sort of an obvious one for you based on, like, did you see yourself going into your PhD, wanting to start a company, or when, how did that evolve? 
Yeah. So I, I think I had gotten interested in entrepreneurship. God, I hate that word, but like, I think I've been interested in like business in general. And I think I told you the story that like, I had a pair of like Tom shoes, which like, by the way, like this, we can talk about this impact model later. Like, don't, <laughs> please don't like dump. <laughs> you take one thing away from this, like don't dump like clothing on third world markets. But at the time, uh, you know, less, less worldly Anna bought a pair of Tom shoes, read this book that he was giving away at the time that was like, go and do things. And I think I took that to heart. I was trying to figure out like what I wanted to do with my life. I think I wanted like to run like a small Etsy shop or something. Like I thought that would be like a cool hobby. <laughs> and so I think that's kind of how I was like approaching this. Um, I know I kind of tried to put like a deadline on myself to figure out like what it was I was trying to do. I think graduate school is the next step. I think I wasn't, I don't think I had like a lot of information about what else I could do. Like to be clear, you know, my, my parents were in academia. They had always, they had always, you know, encouraged me. They said, you know, you've got these really strong science skills. Um, you know, Lord knows as sort of like the, the weird kid at my high school, I think, um, I didn't necessarily see myself as somebody who had strong social skills that, that would be like usable for the world. And so I think that was part of the decision. Um, I think it's like hilarious that so much of my time now is, is spent on sales. But uh, back when I was making this decision, I think I was flying back to the United States to, to visit graduate schools. And I had like just read this like book by the, you know, the guy who started Tom's Shoes, whose name I'm forgetting. It's not Tom, if I... <laughs> remember and um I had this like long layover and I was like at the you know during this layover I'm just gonna like go and like sit in a park or a beach or something and like figure like set a goal and like decide what it is that I I want to do and like no idea how to do it and I think at the time I was like okay like in the next five years like I want to start a business and I want to get a PhD and I had like probably no idea how to do those things um the PhD one, I think I had a little bit more information on, uh, not only because, you know, I was like, I was at an academic institution. I knew PhD students. I don't think I knew anybody who had a business. <laughs> That's super interesting. I, and I guess, especially now that you've been doing this for a few years, I'm curious how you view risk, uh, risk in starting up a, a, a company versus say risk in academia. Um, I think there's a certain appetite of risk needed to start a company or, or an organization. Um, I would also argue there's a certain risk one needs to have, appetite for risk one needs to have for going further in academia. I think it's not quite seen as often, um, but I'm, I'm curious your take on your appetite for risk uh, and what's needed to start a company. And if, you know, you don't see this as uh, quite the, the risky endeavor um, compared to other, other paths you could have taken. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And that's what I tell people now when they ask me about starting a business, because I, I think that's something I hadn't, I either didn't know or didn't think about when we were starting our company um, was this idea of like financial uncertainty. I think though, at the time, like, you know, when I was finishing up graduate school, I was applying, you know, I had applied for like a couple fellowships or positions that I, I didn't get. And so certainly it felt not that risky because I didn't have any other way to feed myself. Right. So, um, I would say 
I don't know, hindsight's always 2020. I think at the time I wasn't thinking about it in terms of that risk because my alternative was like, like literally, I think after graduation, I was like, maybe I'll just like, I don't know, go like my roommate was a DJ and he was talking about like needing a tour manager. And I was like, oh, great. Like I could definitely make some money off of that. Or like maybe I, I had some savings from one of my fellowships. So I was like, maybe I'll just like go like live and be homeless on the beaches of like, I don't know, Europe or something. Um, so uh, starting a business is very risky. <laughs> like I, I I should be very clear, like a couple years into this, there are definitely a lot of like, it's stressful to be broke. It's stressful to not know where your next paycheck may or may not come from. That uncertainty can be, and that riskiness isn't for everyone to, to be clear. Um, at the time, I think I didn't have any, like, it's not like I had any better options. And, um, you know, I think I definitely knew that I had like some sort of social safety net, you know, I have a big enough family that I think I needed to, to stay on, on somebody's couch or, you know, spare bedroom or floor for a couple months. I, I did know that I, I, you know, had that as a fallback option, which again, many people don't have. I think a lot of folks who do start companies are from privileged backgrounds. I had no idea because I just like, didn't know what I didn't know. Um, but at the same time, you know, everyone is, is blessed in different ways. And so, you know, I, I think while it was very stressful, I think if I had to go back and, and do it again, I, I definitely think there are options for like, you know, like there's this oh man, one woman who like raised a fund while she was technically homeless. Um, but she just, you know, she stayed on friends' couches and she, she like tapped her network of friends and people who believed in this, she had this dream, like, I'm going to raise a, a fund to invest in, in, in startups for women of color and like just went and did it. And, you know, I think I definitely meet a lot of, <laughs> since I've started a company, I feel like I've, I've met more people who've lived in situations where I'm like, I think technically that's like maybe homelessness, but, you know, because like there is some type of like social support network like maybe it's not so uh, this might be horrifying for somebody to listen to but I think the, the way I started it was fine which was like no idea was what to come but couldn't be worse than what I already was doing yeah no I I, I agree with that assessment in both that it, it is a risky thing to do um but also it, it comes in stages and, and and sort of to your other comment uh up to many stages, it's, it's reversible <laughs> as a decision. Yeah. Um, I mean, you must have gone through this too. Like to me, the idea of starting a nonprofit is like even more horrific. I actually looked into starting a nonprofit and I was like, this is going to take more money. And everyone I talked to, including you had raised like significant amounts of money. And I was like, I don't know where you get that kind of money <laughs> or yeah. I, I don't know where I would get that kind of money. <laughs> I think they're comparable experiences um, in, in quite a lot of ways in terms of the the risk risk aspect and then the, the the part that you say about privilege i think is really true too um that you have to often have some some piece of privilege in some part of your life in order to be able to to swing it um unless, or, or be willing and or be willing to go through some extreme circumstances uh stability wise to to pull it off that's that's yeah i mean i would on. say too like to anybody who's like if you were listening to this and you're like oh like i don't have xyz like I do think I've heard many successful stories. Like rent is the biggest part of your expense. And I think even if you don't have a big family, I think many people have friends that would really support them on this journey. And I think that was something I didn't necessarily expect was how many people were going to chip in and, and be supportive. Yeah. And so 
you know, that's not to say like, if you have family responsibilities, if you have, you know, if you're sending remittances home to your family abroad, like, you know, sick relatives to take care of, like, yeah, you got to do that. And, and this might not be the, the best path for you, but, you know, I don't think you have to be rich. I just think many people are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I do too. Um, and so I guess looking back at your, at all the different pieces of your career so far in education, what, when you look back, gives you the most satisfaction that you've worked on? I mean, I think it's what I'm working on now, to be quite frank. Like, I, I think I, while working on my PhD dissertation, I, like a lot of the stuff I did was interesting to me. Like the day-to-day -day was really cool. I, um, for my PhD research, I, I looked at, um, I looked at temperature data in, in cities and rural areas, and I got to talk with a lot of community leaders. I got to work with the, the Red Cross um, and the Red Cross's Red Crescent's uh, Climate Center. And I got to do field work in um, Nairobi. I got to collaborate um, on some water modeling work uh, in, in Morocco. I got to spend a lot of time in Alabama, which was super cool. Um, so the day-to-day, -day, like I loved, but I found at the end of the day, I, I don't know, like by the time I did my PhD, I think I maybe the work was focusing a lot on like climate change uh, adaptation. <laughs> and it seems to me that like focusing on climate change mitigation, like stopping climate change might in fact be a little bit more impactful than some of the outcomes of my work, which was like cities should plant more trees. And that's certainly true. Like I think smart design, good design, super important. Um, but I think like one of the, the most technically impactful, uh, papers I wrote was like the message, the take home message was kind of like, this isn't as bad as we thought it was. <laughs> and I think for me, I was kind of like, well, okay, that's like not super motivating. Uh, and so I think what I'm working on now where we actually stop emissions to me, that's totally exciting. And, and what I think I'm really lucky to do is, is that the tools it takes me to stop those emissions kind of draw on everything I've ever learned. It draws on my, my math background. It draws on my applied math background. Um, it draws on the sort of what, what I would now call operations, but at the time was like learning how to deploy sensor networks um, for my PhD. Like I, I, I think I'm very lucky that I do what I did for my PhD. I kind of do that for a living. And I do so in a way that has gotten like more technical and more sort of demanding of somebody like my background. That's not to say I'm like, God knows I'm not the best person in the world to be working on this. And if somebody is listening to me and they're like, wow, she doesn't sound qualified to do this. Like, please give me a call. Like would love to pay you to do it for me, <laughs> especially if you're going to do a better job. Um, but I'm really proud of, of the work we do. I'm really proud of the ability to sort of not only measure emissions, but like get people to take action because of it in a yeah, way that really does, results in emissions reductions. It really does seem like a culmination of all your skills and in a, a super applied and practical measurable setting where you can see the outcome of your, of your work. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I, I'm very lucky to be in that position. I don't know if I set out to do that or not necessarily expected to do that, but um, you know, we look, around for a problem that our, our skill sets and our tools could could solve and, and this one was it. 
So do you have any advice for anyone listening who uh, may want to start their own company, whether it's figuring out they want to start their own company or sort of some first steps uh, to kind of scope out for themselves, whether that might make sense? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the best advice is like, I don't know, if you're thinking about it, just do it. <laughs> like, that's probably what I needed to hear. But you're right. I think there's two separate things to figure out. One is like how you should do it. And then the other one is um, whether or not it is a good path for you. And so I think what I recommended, what I typically recommend people is like, learn a little bit more. Like I, some people I know, you know, do have, do know about, do have people in their lives who have started companies. And I didn't have that. So if you have that, then like, you're probably starting not from square negative five, like I was. So kudos to you. But what I did is I like read books. Um, so I, you know, people recommended books to me. So a year before graduated, spent some time, gotten this, you know, gotten this EPA grant, had started working on this idea of, of building lower cost sensors and had some ideas about how to do it. Not a lot of money, but had gotten our first grant. Spent some time with um, one of my, my fellow students who now co-founded the company with me. And I think we just had this moment where we kind of vocalized this like little dream that was in the back of our heads. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we just did this for a living? And we, I don't know how serious we were, but we said, okay, like in a year from now, we'll start this company. And for whatever reason, like we actually did it, but that gave me like a year long timeline to figure out. And I think honestly, we were probably thinking about starting like a, a nonprofit or something at the time. Um, and uh, so that gave me a year to figure that out. And in that year, I kind of was just like meeting people. And some of it was through the fact that like our, this, what we've been working on as a project, got some, some press interest, like we had funded it in part through crowdfunding and then got this EPA campaign. And so our, like our university media office found out about it. And a lot of times organically, I'd talk with someone and they'd say, Hey, you should go talk with this person. Like you should go talk with the commercialization office, or you should go talk with X or Y. And eventually somebody, um, set me up uh, with uh, um, a venture capitalist, Ben Jealous, um, who at the time was starting to set the groundwork for a gubernatorial run. So like we only met like once or twice, but he was like, these are the list of books you need to read and um, you should really think about starting a company and, and not a nonprofit. And, um, you know, I've heard the story from so like he said, he's, he's done this like spiel to so many people and I, a number of them I've met who've like gone on to start companies. So shout out to, to Ben Jealous for, for doing this. But one of the books he suggested I read was um, this book called Lean Startup. I think it's by Eric Ries, if I'm not mistaken, um, where it talks about like how you do a startup. Um, and so that was the first book I read. There's also The Innovator's Dilemma, which to me really explained from like more of a theoretical perspective, like how new technology gets introduced, like why there's uptake, why there's change in the markets. Um, so what I would suggest to somebody, which like maybe do as I do is not the best advice, but I would suggest you start off there. Um, there's also, uh, I think, a open, a MOOC, a massively open, whatever course on uh, Udemy, I think, about um, starting a company as well. Uh, and so I, you know, I read those things and um, was interested. Oh, also Stanford, I think, has a has an online course like on YouTube that's like all about starting a startup. I only watched like the first lecture where they were like, don't start a startup. It's miserable. Like you'll probably make more money if you work for an already established company on average, um, which is totally true, by the way. 
And like they talked about how they all got back problems from working at these like Silicon Valley startups in the you know mid aughts. Um, I obviously ignored it, all of that because I was like, ugh, these like privileged idiots, like what do they know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I definitely was selectively ingesting information. But what I would say is talk to people, um, read, uh, see if you can get to somebody who has either done work in this space or like uh, understands it. Um, then I think you need to ask the very separate question of like, is this something I should do? I think that's a more personal decision. Like I, I don't know your life. I don't, I don't want to suggest you go down or don't go down a path. Like, don't listen to me. I'm just some, I don't know, stranger on the internet. <laughs> I think, uh, I think the, the, broader point you brought up is 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 right on uh, and thanks for all those recommendations we'll include them in the show notes for the the actual book titles and links um so one last question for you uh, are there any career philosophies or strategies or advice you followed or, or wish you followed over the years uh could you share a couple of those oh my god a total lack thereof <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think that should be like abundantly clear to anybody listening yeah i i feel like i was probably just allergic to getting a proper job like you know i i think the time at which i was in college it was almost still in vogue to go work and be an investment banker um and so i think you know i had a lot of people i either that not close friends but people in you know my sort of orbit who were going and doing that, who were going and working on Wall Street. I think tech had really just started to take off as like the cool thing. I don't know. I don't know if I'm like dating myself either as being old or young or whatever. Um, but I think that's kind of the milieu I was in. I at the time didn't really program. So that meant tech was out. I didn't really have a proper finance background. So like those jobs, I just like by and large didn't get. Um, and so in terms of career philosophy, like I was always looking for a job that I thought I wouldn't hate. I didn't want a miserable job. And obviously I've been you know, extraordinarily lucky in that, I, you know, definitely like the balance in my 401k, which I didn't have until a month ago, uh, you know, bears that out. Like that, this is not smart financial advice, by the way. Um, so I, I don't necessarily recommend that you follow this, but I think in general, I am probably a, a willful and opinionated person. It's probably not a charming personality trait or not my most charming personality trait. But I think what that meant is I knew like in my heart of hearts that if I needed to work in a very rigid environment where, you know, certain customs were more important than the actual work product, um, to me, that was probably not going to be a long-term fit. Like I was happy to work hard um, but I thought that my hardworkingness probably, you know, like the, the, the jobs I've done in agriculture were probably a better fit than I foresaw, you know, going and working in like a, you know, being a quant on Wall Street. And I did apply for one of those jobs. And I actually got, I remember I got a, a rejection letter from a time when I was a master's student that was actually, I have the feeling actually got personalized, which is, is fairly rare. And I remember somebody was kind of like, I think your background is like slightly different and you should go like, go to science. Like, don't, <laughs> don't, don't come to finance. Um, so I think career philosophy, I don't know if I'd like encapsulate it, but for me, it's probably been, don't choose a job that would make you miserable. 
because I know for me, there's like no amount of money that would make up for that misery. Yeah. Like I just, yeah. I wouldn't do it. I think that's a great place to leave off this conversation. Thanks so much again, Anna, for the conversation. Um, and see you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Krista. Thanks for listening to Degrees of Freedom. Go to exploredof.com to sign up and get notified for the next episode. Or subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts.